0: Welcome to Global Rights Defenders, a dynamic weekly podcast about social activism, humanitarianism, and human rights. Hear from global experts on a broad range of topics where the conversation is hosted by a human rights defender herself. Tune in to learn more about how you can be a changemaker. This week we're joined by Nicholas Coglan who served as Canada's first resident diplomat in Khartoum, Sudan between 2000 and 2003. He was the first Canadian ambassador in Juba, the capital of the newly independent South Sudan. Nick and his wife Jenny were awarded the Meritorious Service Cross for their role in the evacuation of Canadian citizens from Juba when the Civil War broke out in 2013. His most recent book is titled Collapse of a Country, a Diplomat's Memoir of South Sudan. Nick, thanks so much for joining us today. Can you just tell us a bit about yourself?
1: I was a teacher on Vancouver Island, but I'd always done a, a lot of traveling, and it's a bit of a cliche, but I uh, wanted to get paid to travel. And am interested in international politics. Uh, the, the, the foreign service, Canadian Foreign Service seemed like an obvious choice. It's a very long process getting in. Uh, I sat the exam at the University of Victoria, and then it was nearly two years before getting in. Um, and then I did, in the, in the course of my career, six foreign postings, and with uh, a couple of relatively short stints in in Ottawa. So uh, even though it was a second career, I did manage to cram in a fair amount of activity overseas.
0: So what was your involvement in Sudan, and why did the Canadian Embassy choose to send you?
1: Okay, so Sudan, for many years, Canada did not have a, uh, a diplomatic presence in Sudan. We covered Sudan from, in fact, from our embassy in Ethiopia which is fine, but it's a very different country. Ethiopia has its own priorities, and we 24-7 up there. So we did not have any presence in, in Sudan. And then, really, starting in the late 90s, we, uh, there was a Canadian oil company which began activities in Sudan um, where the oil reserves were and remain quite promising. The company's name was Talisman. But the operations were extremely controversial because Sudan was engaged in a civil war and had been until, uh, since 1983. Basically, the the north of Sudan versus the south, we'll get into that a little bit later. So the presence of this oil company was creating a lot of controversy back in Canada for two reasons. First of all, in that, um, obviously, the, the proceeds from oil were allowing the government of Sudan to pursue the war in a in a particularly aggressive manner. A lot of abuses, to be frank, uh, war crimes. Mm-hmm. And secondly, the company was right on the dividing line of what would become South Sudan. In other words, right on the on the conflict lines. So in fact, a danger to the uh, Canadian executives and so on. So the then Canadian Foreign Minister, Lloyd Exworthy, set up a, a, a commission to investigate to what extent the Canadian oil company, Talisman, was contributing to the conflict in In Sudan, was fueling the war, I guess, was the, the term used by the media. This was known as the Harker Commission, uh, led by a Canadian called John Harker. They went out into the field for, for several months. Its conclusions, they pulled their punches in the end, we'll come to that, but one of the recommendations was that Canada should establish a physical diplomatic presence on the ground to really get a better idea of what was going on in in Sudan. So that fell to me uh, in 2000 to open a very small office in Khartoum just to get a handle on the situation. I think it was uh, unique in that my um, instructions from the Canadian Foreign Minister were do nothing to improve the relations with Sudan. We just wanted to know, we wanted to find out what was what was happening and so it was really a a kind of a watching brief certainly I did not have a brief to encourage trade relations or anything like that we had no aid program at the time it was just to get a better handle on what was going on so we opened our office initially jointly with the British Embassy and then two years later in 2002 we, we kind of separated and established our own office there so that was that was how we got involved now, in fact, the oil company—we can talk about that a little bit later—left just a couple of years later, in 2002, and really then the the focus of my work and of the the office's work became the the civil war, the ongoing, the ongoing civil war in Sudan, which was winding down, and the incipient, the starting conflict in, in Darfur. So when it was the focus started to shift mm-hmm. and became. Um, Uh, well, more related, more generally to what was going on in the country. Still very restricted. Just a few years later, the president, uh, President Bashir, was indicted for war crimes. So for many years, we maintained a very standoffish relationship. And certainly there was no mandate for trade. Um, In fact, it took 20 years. It was after the fall of Bashir, just a couple of years ago, that we upgraded the status of the office to to call it a full embassy, uh, what was going on in Darfur, which really only started towards the end of my my mandate, two thousand and two, two thousand and three, that's when Darfur started to come up. Mm-hmm. But as Darfur was has been, I can say a much more gradual process than than Rwanda. But the the genocide in Rwanda happened in a relatively in a very short time. Mm-hmm. Uh, in Darfur, it took all of us, I think, a, a fair amount of time to figure out what was happening a remote part of the country. Diplomats were not normally there, and rather sadly, in, in hindsight, all of the diplomats, uh, everybody in, in Sudan, uh, all of the diplomats were focused on the peace process with Southern Sudan, in other words, with ending the civil war, right. which is a conflict quite unrelated to what's happening in Darfur. Right. So I, I well recall that the, the senior, one of the senior UN officials in um, in Khartoum at the time. He was aware of what was happening in Darfur, was, was almost literally wringing his hands. But the response from the rest of the diplomats was, we can't worry about Darfur. We've got to get this, this peace agreement with, with southern Sudan signed and delivered. Let's worry about Darfur later, mm-hmm. which in hindsight was a terrible mistake. Mm-hmm. Darfur just rolled on and on and on. And possibly um, the death toll is not really known, but possibly up to 500,000 in, in over the last 15 to 20 years. Mm-hmm. And even now, Darfur is still really uh, unsettled.
0: Mm-hmm. So why was the political landscape in the South more contentious than in the North?
1: Well, with the South, there had long been, um, from, the, from the moment at which Sudan became independent in 1956... Mm-hmm. It was, a, it was a British and Egyptian joint colony. It had long been known and expected that, that there would be problems with the south. In fact, many in the south had thought that when the British left, the southern part of Sudan would be annexed to East Africa,
0: mm-hmm. to
1: Kenya or Uganda, which were also which also had been British colonies. So there was some surprise when the Sudan was left intact with its internal problems. with mean, a little bit of history there. The very peculiar arrangement between uh, Britain and Egypt was that basically the British kind of looked after southern Sudan, mm-hmm. which had a lot more in common with Uganda and Kenya, whereas the Egyptians looked after northern Sudan. Now, in, in fact, that South Sudan remained grotesquely underdeveloped. For example, there was only one in 2005, the time of... Independence or a time when the independence process began, there was only one secondary school in all of southern Sudan. So, hugely underdeveloped, there were no roads, there was no power system, nothing. Uh, but there had been really a kind of apartheid. It had been hugely underdeveloped. The southerners knew this, they felt underdeveloped. There was a feeling of difference, a feeling they'd been neglected by the north, and that, that manifested itself almost immediately in fighting, in rebellion by the military and fighting, which started almost immediately on independence. So right from 1956 through to 2005, Mm -hmm. with one significant break in the middle, was a state of civil war, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: with the South really flexing its muscles, looking for initially a much better deal from Khartoum, and then ultimately uh, separation, independence. Mm -hmm.
0: I think there was only 11 years in between those first two civil wars. And at the time, there were over 60 ethnic groups who put aside their differences to fight together so that they could get independence eventually for South Sudan in 2011.
1: Yes. Yeah. I mean, you, you, you put your finger on it there. There was, there was this interval of about 10 or 12 years, mm-hmm. a very uneasy peace. It all fell apart because they couldn't make the federal arrangements work. Uh, developments in, in Khartoum. The Khartoum government became more radical, mm-hmm. so, so war restarted. But as you said, they put aside their differences to focus on the north, and that, that's, a, that's a critical point. I think that was not always well understood right. outside the country. The huge differences within southern Sudan, which were to some extent were camouflaged by this this enmity, this opposition with the north. So when ultimately they did get their independence which was promised in 2005 and mm-hmm. was, really became uh, real in 2011, that's when the South began to fall in upon itself, what, what we've seen now. But you also touched on uh, an, another really interesting issue there. Officially, throughout the years of the civil war, the southern Sudanese were not after independence. They were after what they, they wanted, a new arrangement. They wanted a more democratic Sudan, they wanted more devolved autonomy. Mm-hmm. It's what the iconic leader of South Sudan, John Duran, called the, the New Sudan. Now, that really was for Western consumption, because most Western, very few Western countries wanted them to see more, more uh, independent countries in Africa. Mm-hmm. The lines have been drawn for better and for worse in colonial times, and the precedent of countries starting to break up. Particularly on tribal grounds, was one that the international community has found very, very disconcerting, very worrying. So, for the purposes of the international community, the objective of the uh, the rebellion in the south was always all about autonomy and democracy, not about separation. In reality, the soldiers on the ground were fighting for separation. Yes.
0: Right, right. Yeah, yeah. The things that they're telling the Western people who consume the Western media is a different story.
1: Yes, I mean, the map, you will still find the South Sudanese to talk about the map, because the the South Sudanese had had long expected, as I said, uh, to to be separate or have some status, possibly attached to East Africa, and then even following separation, the question of where the border with uh, the rest of Sudan would be was was absolutely critical, and even more critical because that is where the oil fields are. And it's still a point of contention. There is one Particular area of contention, the the, uh, the large zone known as Abyei, which has its own peacekeeping force, UN peacekeeping force, but there are 10 or 12 other differences on the border. Again, many South Sudanese will tell you with all seriousness that uh, the British have the key, that they, they have the map, and it's locked up somewhere in the archives in London or in the University of Durham, which I'm sure is not so, sadly.
0: Right, right. Yeah. Well, you can't blame them, though, right? Like an arbitrary line was drawn basically in their country. They they want claim to that. So,
1: Yes, it was a know. very arbitrary line. It was drawn over 100 years ago yeah. in extremely remote territory, probably by some civil servant with a rough pencil on a very rough map, and that was it
0: right right we talk a lot about or we've touched a little bit about how the us and international members have shown support in certain ways but you know it's just kind of for show if we want to call it that but i know that a lot of gulf allies have really been supporting the area as well what do you think the benefit of the gulf allies would be to provide funding or aid to the sudanese at this time over having you know more western interests providing those resources
1: Okay well well first of all we need to i mean obviously following the uh, the separation of south sudan in in 2011 you then had two entities and you know b- b- very broadly speaking sudan with its arab muslim identity i'm i'm oversimplifying here Remained more or less in the orbit of the of the Arab world, the Middle Eastern world, and South Sudan has liked to think of itself more in the orbit of, of East Africa, which is the former British colonies, English speaking, non-Muslim, in other words, Christian or or animist Nilotic people, as in as in much of Kenya. So really, they became two two entities in two two geopolitical spheres, if you like. Now, now Sudan in particular, Sudan remained under. De facto military dictatorship until just just two or three years ago, right. and the, the military, for their own purposes, essentially to remain in power, maintain very strong contacts with Egypt, in particular, see Egypt as the former colonial master from the north. Egypt has had its uh, had its own quasi coup and uh, run the strongman uh, Al Sisi, and then with the the Gulf Gulf countries and Saudi. Very complicated politics in there, so Sudan's alliance has shifted a little bit according to what has been going on in the Gulf. But strong alliances with Saudi Arabia and United Arab Emirates. Now, none of these countries are democracies mm-hmm. by, by any means. Mm-hmm. And this has really come to a head quite recently. Those those alliances where it's clear that those three countries in particular, Egypt the united arab emirates and saudi arabia have tended to support the strong la- the strongman approach in sudan in other words the military dominance of the of the current transitional regime and just within the last month certainly egypt is the only country that has not spoken out against the coup and it is clear that this coup would not have gone ahead Without an unofficial green light from Egypt. So that's really, you know, Sudan's a little circle of uh, alliances. South Sudan operates really in, in a different world, but is finding itself pretty much at sea. Of course, Ethiopia is in complete disarray these days. Ethiopia was very much a force for stability and, until quite recently. So Ethiopia now very much an unknown quantity. The relations with Kenya and Uganda, very strong commercial relations There of Ugandan and Kenyan traders. And so really the strongest ally for South Sudan is actually Uganda. And during the civil war, which the South Sudanese civil war, which began in 2013, Uganda was the key partner that allowed the, allowed the Juba government to to hang in there. Mm -hmm. Uganda sent in troops to to defend Juba. Mm -hmm.
0: Mm Yeah, thank you for detailing that. There was a lot of really important information there. We talked a little bit about the Sudanese economy and kind of how they're unable to support themselves fully. I know that between 1997 and 2017, the U.S. placed sanctions on Sudan for a false claim that they were producing chemical weapons for al-Qaeda. Sudan wasn't, and in the end, they didn't have access to the international market. So how has Sudan supported its economy thus far? Well, I mean, that's a really good question. First of all, the sanctions, we do
1: need to remember it was just US sanctions. Mm. So, OK, so the US was the, you know, the, the dominant economy with which uh, Sudan was involved. So certainly very constricting, if you like, but it was only the US. Right. So, for example, when it came to oil exploitation, normally, you know, you, normally the US is in there when it comes to the exploitation, exploration and exploitation of the oil fields. Because of those sanctions, the US was not in there and that, was why the Canadian company Talisman edged its way in along with um, China and Malaysia and with Sudan from a four-way consortium. So although the sanctions were there, there are ways around it. So the oil operation managed to, to get launched really without US involvement, which is unusual but not unprecedented. Even the financial sanctions for example when i arrived in sudan in, in 2000 with full financial sanctions on it meant you the so example, us travellers checks no longer is such a thing as traveler's checks but that was your convenient means of carrying foreign currency around, were non-negotiable but so we had a very complicated arrangement with a bank in the United Arab Emirates, with the UAE in order to be able to finance our office Mm -hmm. and the whole thing was actually highly irregular but everybody was doing it, quite a paper trail going from the Canadian government to the bank in the UAE to our bank in Khartoum and what was more an Islamic bank which is a a rather, it's a different creature from a Western bank. So there are ways around the financial constraints. And then there was uh, certainly resources such as gold. So Sudan has significant gold resources and gold mining. Gold was basically being marketed directly, not through the usual channels. So they're able to keep going. And You know, sanctions, as we've seen elsewhere, the classic case being Cuba, sanctions also gave the the government of Sudan, our military government basically, an excuse to blame America for its own failings. Right. You know, as we've seen in in Cuba with sanctions there, it's very convenient the government of Cuba can blame the big bad USA for everything that goes wrong. Mm -hmm. And in Sudan, a little bit the same thing, to the point at which... And the the sanctions are not total. For example, sanctions did not apply very specifically to aircraft maintenance, Boeing and so on. But when when I was serving there, there was a crash of a Boeing 737, which sadly almost every passenger was killed. Immediately, the finger was pointed at the US and saying, well, if, if we didn't have sanctions, we would have been able to do the maintenance. Actually not true, because sanctions did not apply to critical maintenance and spare parts and so on. And in reality, the cause was Inefficiency and corruption within Sudan Airways, they just haven't done the maintenance. A great great reason to blame -hmm. Blame other people for your own failings.
0: You just fact checked that for me because in my research for this, the number one thing it said it didn't have access to was airplane parts. It said airplane parts and healthcare facility resources. So the fact that you were on the ground and and could say that firsthand. Yeah, those
1: are exempt. Again, if you go to the the small print of the sanctions, those are exempt. And uh, they did have access to them. Right. They chose not to, but because those are the vulnerable points at which they can go out to the the broader world and say, listen, our babies are dying, our aircraft are going down, and it's all because of sanctions. Right. Actually not true.
0: Right. I also saw that not as popular and maybe not as profitable, but human trafficking is also part of the economy there, especially child soldiers.
1: Yes, child soldiers. Well, you know, more recently, really semi-official, I suppose, Sudan has been supplying mercenaries, to the, the conflict in, in Yemen fighting on the on the side of Saudi Arabia and, no. and the Emirates in, in quite large numbers very little known about it right. but certainly many of them are, are child soldiers there is anecdotal evidence of how many of them been child soldiers and quite heavy losses so that's been another source of income really ever since the the the, the conflict in Yemen started uh, you know a number of years ago yeah child soldiers and obviously child soldiers that that phenomenon remains really is it's a very significant phenomenon in South Sudan mm-hmm. probably more child soldiers in South Sudan than anywhere else in the world in fact.
0: Mm-hmm. That's just terrible to hear because even just doing research for this, it, one of the articles or videos said that the children have been missing. They can't be found. So to think that they would be sent to a third country or a second country is just terrifying.
1: Yes, and, and in very large numbers. I, it appears, I mean, we're talking hundreds who have, have disappeared and died in, in that conflict in Yemen. Yeah. Yeah,
0: yeah that's uh, terrible. Uh, and, you
1: know, meanwhile, we have quite a different phenomenon of trafficking in that Sudan has, has, is a uh, a corridor, a route, if you like, for migration through Libya yes, to the Mediterranean yeah, yeah. And, and, up, and up to Europe. Yeah, Libya has a terrible
0: uh, human trafficking problem.
1: Yeah, and uh, you have, you know, it's really for various entities and individuals taking cash rake-offs from, from every single individual that is that is channeling through Sudan. right. It's. I mean, it's a controversial point. I mean, this is the, the European Union has, has become very aware of this phenomenon, so has actually been for the last several years paying Sudan to maintain detention camps right. to really to break that immigration. Uh, but the entity responsible, or primarily responsible for maintaining those detention camps, is what's known in Sudan as the RSF, the Rapid Support Forces formerly known as the Janjaweed. weed, for Mm -hmm. uh, for these uh, vicious, quasi-legal militias uh, responsible over the last 20 20 years for huge human rights abuses, but they are the entity that is tasked with maintaining these these transit camps. I believe that's the the euphemism, to break migration with European Union funds.
0: Well, I think European governments have been promoting anti-migration policies where the U.S. government has been promoting military operations because the military is centralized and they can be a point of contact for the U.S. to, to speak with when they need to.
1: Yes, very much so. Well, you know, in a way, you can see why the uh, European Union is is worried about migration. It's an issue that it affects the EU much more directly than it affects anybody else. Whereas the US, yes, you put your finger on it. You know, after 9-11, and this was really counterintuitive because there were full sanctions still remaining on Sudan, intelligence cooperation with Sudan, clandestine intelligence cooperation with Sudan really became quite, quite significant. So you had, on the one hand quite extensive cooperation between the cia and the sudanese authorities and on the other hand sanctions come from the state department and there's been uh, you know a lot of this remains to has not fully come out to light but there's no question that even while the sanctions were at full strength sudan was cooperating with with the u.s in counterintelligence and everything that like initially al-qaeda subsequently isis and so on
0: right Right. Yeah, that's uh, crazy to think about. And you also, again, talked about how the U.S. didn't have anything to do with the oil. Is that what you said? Because in 1999, they, someone built an oil pipeline in the Red Sea, and that kind of enabled large-scale development of oil within Sudan.
1: Yes, the oil, I mean, it had initially been when Sudan was one country, the large American company Chevron did a lot of the international exploration Mm -hmm. and some very, a little bit of, not very small amounts of of, of production, but down in this disputed area on what is now the border between Sudan and South Sudan. Chevron had a couple of people uh, killed in an attack by um, SPLA, by the southern rebels. They pulled out and then you had... Full American sanctions went on, which would anyway have blocked any American company from from operating there. Right. And into that vacuum, this is where you had Canadian company Talisman, right. a blue chip, a Western oil company, with very good technological skills. really reopen the operation and they came in and actually then the partnership became a a very odd four-way partnership between talisman the uh, and then the Chinese national oil company Mm -hmm. uh, the Malaysian and the Sudanese a four-way partnership to operate it but it was talisman's expertise and technology the Western edge that allowed the oil business to to really get going again it's very unusual Normally, it's the Americans who are there developing and opening up.
0: Right. Talisman, they were in the unity fields, which laid outside the government control. So they kind of set up the structure to how to operate. And then other countries came in and began following their model. Is that correct?
1: Well, Talisman, there was a four-way partnership. Usually when you have a, a partnership, the partners, whether it's two or more, designate one of the partners to be the actual operator. While the others are really just, you know, just putting in the the, the financing. Mm-hmm. In this case, very it was very peculiar. All four partners jointly operated, right? Um, which which meant down at the camp you had, for example, you had your Canadian canteen, you had your Chinese canteen, your Malaysian one, and your Sudanese, mm-hmm. all with different menus, for example. So four different nationalities all running the same oil operation. That that is that is very unusual. Now the the area most of the oil fields were in. It was acknowledged that as and when there was going to be a peace settlement most of the oil fields would probably come into the well half of the oil fields would probably come into the north and certainly the actual center of operations falls just inside what is now sudan but a lot of the actual resources in the south so when you did have separation the separation process began in 2005 and culminated in 2011 with full independence Although the center of operations fell within the north, most of the fields were in the south. Mm-hmm. So that was a big, actually, a big blow economically to Sudan. Right. Although the pipeline ran to the north, just to confuse things, yeah. more, <laughs> uh, the oil fields were in the south. Right. So obviously, you had to have a deal. Now, initially, everybody thought South Sudan is going to become a super rich oil state where Sudan is going to be impoverished because they're going to lose most of the oil. In fact, as we've seen, South Sudan has squandered its oil for a a number of reasons. And uh, Sudan has its other issues, which are more political than anything else.
0: Right. So what have been the long term? Actually, you know what? I didn't think about it that way. I have to interject. I didn't think about it that way that they would be losing so much economic promise if the country were to be divided. That would have been a huge blow
1: it was a huge blow and in fact you know it certainly go back before the peace settlement was finalized and many people thought, well there's no way Sudan will let the South go. it's just too uh, it's too important economically and so it was actually with some surprise, I mean a pleasant surprise, when in 2005, Sudan signed on the line and began the process that would lead to independence, people thought there's no way right. they'll actually let this happen. And then we had a six-year interim period when, again, everybody was very sceptical. The interim period was to end with a referendum when everybody thought, well, there's no way Sudan will actually go ahead with this referendum and let them go. But they did. And, you know, in a way, credit to them. But in reality, they let them go because they were just, I, this had been a 23-year 20, war of attrition they were just sick of it. It had cost hundreds of thousands of lives on both sides. And a hard deal was struck over the oil. Right. First of all, Sudan still had the pipeline. So Sudan knew that for South Sudan to get its oil out, it had to go through the Sudanese pipeline. So a, uh, how can I say, a price list was set that was extremely beneficial to Sudan. And the transit fees and royalties was set at a fixed rate that had nothing to do with the price of oil. So there have been periods when oil has been around $50, $60 a barrel when South Sudan has made no money at all because of all of the payments it's had to make to Sudan to get that oil out.
0: Wow. And I know that there's records or counts of people waiting hours in line to fill up their trucks or cars.
1: Yes. And and so all of the oil is going north. Mm -hmm. So again, in South Sudan, there's a real perception problem with the public the public knows that south sudan is quote oil rich but it has no refineries Mm -hmm. so all that oil goes north to tankers in the red sea and then some of its processed in sudan and it comes by you know an extremely roundabout route eventually through kenya and and and, and uganda Mm
0: -hmm.
1: now now meanwhile i was just reading today the the way the south sudanese have managed the oil because in spite of everything in spite of those killing transit fees and and, and royalties, they still have had sufficient money uh, or should have had sufficient money to really get a small state like South Sudan up on its feet and running. Mm -hmm. Now, in fact, that oil money has been frittered away and more than frittered into corruption. So just an item in the news this morning from a recent IMF report, they discovered that in 2018, and this is just a sample year they have discovered in the small print in the books over $500 million worth of advanced sales Wow written away unofficially off the books
0: Oh my God and
1: there's no idea where that $500 million come, have gone mm-hmm. where well, it's gone into the pockets of, of, of corrupt officials Right So the oil money that has come in most of it has gone into corruption and has been frittered away and certainly has not been spent on, on services. This is a huge frustration to Western governments mm-hmm. who are saying, listen, you have oil. It's not a huge amount, but you have sufficient for a, for a small country like South Sudan. Where is that oil money going? And um, Why are you not spending it on services and education and so on? Because in the meantime, when the South, South Sudan government has not been spending it, it's been the U.S., Canada, yeah. Britain, and so on who have been financing um, education, health, and emergency humanitarian relief.
0: Yeah, um, yeah, and that's not even something we're talking about today. Is it? but but last time I I interacted with you, it was about humanitarian aid in Sudan and why it was difficult for it to get in. So to imagine on top of what you know, I knew and what we knew two years ago. To bring it to five hundred million in prepayments now that we're just finding out about is yeah, just 500 insane. Million, that's just
1: one year. Wow. where they were able to find the little line in the books of five hundred million dollars that has suddenly gone offline.
0: Wow, that's unbelievable. <laughs> and,
1: and you have to assume it. Uh, unfortunately, we're not just talking about now. These are future payments that have been right. signed away. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, maybe. F- so, so we're with this problem. Even if you cleaned up everything right now and got a completely transparent flow, there's no question there are huge mortgages and debts which are on the books for future oil sales. So any oil that is sold today is actually owed from some previous deal, as far as we can tell.
0: Wow, I don't even want to see what happens if all of this comes to light and how much more we find out about this. The country's already so vulnerable, so I I fear for what would happen afterwards.
1: It's yeah. I mean, the difficulty is, you then in a, in, a quest, in, a, in a matter of, I think about, we, you know, we talked about this last time we met, is really it is the international community who are providing the life-saving services in mm-hmm. Sudan. If we say to the government, listen, you've got to put your own money into this, the government will, well, they won't say they're not going to, but they won't do it. And so, if we follow through on our threat and pull out, you have a, a humanitarian catastrophe of, of the first magnitude. Wow. So it's so we're in a they have us over a barrel. It's it's moral blackmail. Yeah.
0: Wow, that's terrible. Well, we talked a little bit about we talked a lot about oil, which was great, and we talked about some of the conflict. What we haven't yet talked about is arms and how arms have been associated with sudan especially in terms of africa within the region i know that uh, the u.s has sold over 1 billion in arms to them and russia has a very deeply vested interest in the arms trade with sudan can you talk a little bit about why sudan has such an entrenched interest in arms and why they're known as africa's arms dump
1: well first of all you're you're right so we've had you know nearly 50 years you had between um, Nearly 50 years of of civil war running up to about 2005, with all parties basically in the market for weapons. A lot of that period was, you know, the Cold War. So South Sudan in particular was was a little bit of a staging point for Cold War warriors. With oddly, you know, the CIA, the Chinese, the Russians all competing to sell weapons into South Sudan or to supply them illegally. So that the, the, the whole area, all of Sudan became a wash in small arms in particular, not just small arms, tanks and so on as well. For uh, really, for most of that period, the U.S., had effectively sided with South Sudan in their rebellion. So there were a lot of clandestine programs of supplying weapons. But in the very complicated way that these things work, that doesn't necessarily mean they were American guns and weapons. It means they were supplying the money for the South Sudanese to buy their weapons, sometimes from U.S. Cold War enemies, whether it be uh, the Soviet Union, Russia or or China. So really the whole area has been awash in weapons, uh, particularly small arms, uh, meanwhile, you have Sudan itself has a significantly arms fabrication industry. The military, very dominant. Basically, the military has run the government for most of Sudan's life and very involved in arms production themselves. So you're right. It's a huge lake of, of small arms that just move around. Mm-hmm. Periodically, there are you know attempts at disarmament operations, in South Sudan, uh, a purge will be made. They're going to go into a number of villages, population going to be disarmed. There are so many weapons around that what people do is they simply hand in their second or third least the most, most serviceable weapon, and keep a couple more under the bed. And then those weapons are not destroyed. They end up just circulating around. Right. So really, it's an absolute nightmare. So having an arms embargo, which there is, and I think it's the right thing to have, but it's actually a very limited effect because mm-hmm. there are so many weapons still in circulation. And then meanwhile, you have, again, there is a, U- there is a UN embargo, arms embargo on mm-hmm. both countries. case of South Sudan, Uganda flagrantly violates that. In other words, Uganda buys weapons on the international market, including helicopters, armed helicopters, and uh, resells them to South Sudan on a clandestine bilateral mm-hmm. basis. It's hardly secret, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the arms embargo is is extremely porous. Uh, there's basically no enforcement.
0: But the other side of that as well is the political lack of enforcement, because I know Russia and China will block any sanctions that is intended to put on that such an embargo as well.
1: Well, exactly. Yes. Yeah. I mean, that's you're then into you know global global politics in New York, where almost regardless of what the issue is, it's not that Russia and or or China have a particular interest in South Sudan, but they have a particular interest in opposing you know Western initiatives, U.S. initiatives, and so on. So anything that U.S. proposes an arms embargo, the knee-jerk reaction is is no, we're not going to cooperate, we're going to veto it. So the weapons issue, yes, there has to be an embargo and there should be, but until there's real enforcement, not much will happen. Uh, You know, a lot of the enforcement comes down to how much are we, you know, the larger Western countries, how much are we prepared to lean on the neighboring countries, whether it be Uganda, Kenya, Ethiopia, to, to really close those borders. And on sanctions in general, probably the most effective single sanction you could put on South Sudanese people you wish to sanction for war crimes or crimes against humanity, would be simply to put a travel ban on and say, you may not travel to Uganda or Kenya. And that's actually, that's, That would actually be a cost-free sanction. That would be uh, because all of the big men in, in both Sudan and South Sudan, they have their holdings outside their country. Their children are often go to school outside. They travel there constantly. If you just were able to enforce that, no, you can't get on a plane to Entebbe or Nairobi, that would actually be probably much more effective than trying to track down their bank accounts in New York.
0: Right. Yeah, that's an interesting perspective because I wanted to ask you about the International Criminal Court that was set up after Rwanda, but it's clear that it's difficult to hold regions accountable, so giving a more personal punishment might actually be effective.
1: Well, the personal punishment, I mean, the International Criminal Court, right, I, I, this is, you know, it's become very topical. with. So President Bashir, mm-hmm. of uh, the dictator of Sudan, who was deposed a couple of years ago and has been sitting in prison Qartu ever since. So he was indicted on a number of charges, actually 11 charges of war crimes crimes against humanity and genocide Mm -hmm. in the case of Darfur and now until two or three years ago nobody really thought that these charges had a chance of prospering he was still in office very frustratingly from the point of view of many countries he still traveled freely throughout Africa even though in theory countries that had signed on to the international criminal court were meant to have arrested him they didn't right now there is some hope. He's sitting in prison. He was deposed in a coup two or three years ago. Yeah. But nevertheless, the uh, the military, who are still part of the governing arrangement in Sudan, have very strong ties to Bashir. And there's no question that they fear if he is taken to The Hague to face those charges.
0: They will, will be will, as well, right? Yeah. He
1: will finger a lot of them. So it is not in their interest to release him. So even though it was a popular call in the Sudan Revolution two years ago, Bashir must face justice, I I think it's, uh, sadly, it is quite unlikely the military will hand him over. And even the civilians who share power have just in the last month, of course, been cowed by the military, intimidated. And basically, the message has been, if you step out of line, we will step in again and take over completely. So even though you now, as of just last week, you have a civilian prime minister back in office, Mm -hmm. I would doubt very much that he will be prepared to hand Bashir over. And then the bigger issue is nobody in the region wants to see a dictate one of their fellows however odious that person may be, wants to see them uh, taken off to Europe uh, to face justice. Too many of them have too much to lose themselves.
0: I mean, we Um, could draw parallels as well with the United States and Trump because they don't want to jail a president, a U.S. president. What kind of message would that send to the international community?
1: Well, yeah, I I mean, I I think in in the case of it's... It's often alleged, you know, from Africa, it will say, well, how come the ICC only goes after African leaders? Right. It is true that nearly all of the, how can I say, the VIPs that have been indicted by the International Criminal Court are African. Having said that, nearly all of those were actually referred by African governments. Mm. So it's it's a little disingenuous to say that the ICC is entirely anti-African. Mm-hmm. I, I, think, I believe there are 11 major cases before the ICC all involving african heads of state or ex heads of state mm-hmm. of those 8 were referred by african countries themselves the icc in case of bashir he was uh, that is a result of a united nations security council vote that he should be indicted Interestingly, that vote went through with the support at the time of Russia and, and China and of the U.S., which is actually not a signatory of the ICC. And the other major African indictee was the result of the Kenyan elections of about 10 years ago, and that has been dropped. So to say it's anti-African is not really, it, I agree the perception is that way, and certainly all of those charges are African, but nearly all of those were referred by African governments.
0: Interesting. You talked a little bit about relying on neighboring countries. But seeing as neighboring countries are in their own pursuit of civil, you know, unrest... Do you think it's possible to lean on those countries like Ethiopia for instance has 60,000 who fled into the Sudanese borders and we're witnessing a collapse. We've also seen half a dozen other countries where their democracies are backsliding, Chad with military transition, Niger, Mali, Guinea, Ethiopia and Tunisia. So what can we how can you how can you strengthen that area?
1: Cool. that that, i mean that that's that's hugely challenging you know in, in in the case of of sudan of seeing what we can do to well first of all i you know i should say I don't think any of us should be in the business of... of, of, By us, I mean, the international community, we should not be in the business of regime change here. Uh, Really, what happens in Sudan is principally up to the people of Sudan, and that's how it it should be. You know, it it appears, and there's every reason to believe that the people of Sudan have had enough of military government. Mm -hmm. Uh, They do not wish to see... They do not wish to be ruled in that way. Fine. The obstacle to that objective one of the principal obstacles appears to be in this case egypt uh, egypt is a de facto military dictatorship maybe a relatively benign one al-sisi has legitimized himself with elections but really you know he came to power as as a as a general as a military man what he called a rectification of the egyptian the, the egyptian version of the arab spring in other words, the military coming in to change the course to suit their own interests. So and so Egypt is in fact the key here because there's no question Egypt has winked or given the nod to the Sudanese generals to tighten up. Now you then come into, okay, so to what extent can the West, in particular the US, because you know the US relationship with Egypt is huge in terms of military support, just Um, the US and but then you're into Middle Eastern politics right the US wants above all a stable Egypt it's you know whether the Egypt is democratic or whether that government reflects the will of its people is less important to the US than the fact of its stability and so if they've decided Al-Sisi is their man and he represents stability and this all comes into the what's the balance of power in the Middle East then the US is uh, in a its 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 ability to lean on Al Sisi is is limited right. because it's a game of bluff. They will not withdraw their support from the Egyptian regime, and the Egyptian regime knows that. As for Ethiopia, there's frankly there's no government that one could even interact with at, at this time. Normally, yes, it would be influential, but as we know, that's in a full state of full civil war and apparently about to collapse
0: it seems that yeah i mean what's happening in ethiopia is just terrible and as we were talking a little earlier we saw abi ahmed go or talking about going to lead his people into the war himself to be a commander so what's just happening there is just crazy but in egypt it seems that um you know egypt the uae qatar saudi they all want to reinstate monarchies or if not monarchies they just want they just want control of the region in general. So I wonder what that would look like if they were to be successful with, with their allied countries to gain that kind of power over the area.
1: Well, again, I mean, you know, you, you look at, at Saudi Arabia, I, frankly, you know, what more repellent regime is there?
0: Literally, <laughs> what yeah.
1: anti regime yeah. is there? <laughs> Once they can get away with the blatant murder of Khashoggi and uh, and other abuses and so on, and yet they continue to enjoy de facto Western support right. um, for absolutely uh, cynical realpolitik. Whether it be oil, the geopolitics. Uh, everybody's against Iran, therefore you have to be pro Saudi Arabia because Saudi Arabia is the main bulwark against against Iran. So all of this, you know, once you're into this geopolitics you've gone a long way from what's actually happening in Sudan or South Sudan. And those become very, very small interests in comparison to the perceived larger interests of, of the West and of the U.S. in particular right. um, in the region when they're moving the jigsaw, the pieces of the jigsaw around on the board.
0: Right. Do you think that it would be possible for Sudan to have a civilian-controlled government, seeing as there's been such a uh, a fight for power over the last few years?
1: I think, well, you know, what, what happened um, two years, three years ago in Sudan, I mean, just, just just to recap, almost exactly three years ago, in December 2018, you had rioting and demonstrations began, initially sparked by something so mundane as the price of bread. And that turned into growing and more massive mobilizations against the government in general, the military-dominated government. And this was a phenomenon we'd seen 10 or 12 years ago, the so-called Arab Spring, where protests begin for often economic reasons, not particularly political, and then morph into generalized discontent against the, the uh, autocratic regimes. So in what happened in Sudan was that that mobilization, which was very, very impressive and uh, um, rather odd in a way because there was no individual leadership. It was led by these rather funny sounding organizations like the Sudan Professionals Association and Sudanese Translators for Change. There was trade union organizations. There were no pers- no great personalities leading this revolution. A lot of women again, it's counterintuitive in this very conservative part of the world but women were quite literally at front lines. Remember there was an iconic woman on the, really, on the barricades so really just a very inspiring moment of people power pushing and, and it it led to the you know the, certainly the downfall of the then dictator Omar al Bashir but what then happened was in a way the, the you know the revolution it didn't quite go far enough it was forestalled the military the bulk of the military said okay we get what you're saying here's the deal we'll dump Bashir and a few of the uh, the really bad guys that you don't like but we'll still hang on to power but we'll share power with civilians and so that is what has happened for the last two years. has been this very uneasy relationship, a, a sovereign council with, at the top, a general who's really the de facto president, It's General Burhan, a civilian prime minister, Prime Minister Handog, and then the council split between civilian and military but with a very uneasy relationship. Now, uneasy because the civilians have been trying to, how can I say, gradually diminish the power of the military, make them into a more normal military that is under uh, civilian political influence, and to disengage them from the economy. Sudanese military have their hands all over the Sudanese economy in a whole range of areas. So that really is that tension that came to to a head about a month ago when the military said, enough, you've gone far enough. We're really not prepared to release the levels of power to this extent, and we're going to have a, quote, course correction. Mm-hmm. So you now have people on the streets again. I'm actually quite optimistic, well, optimistic in the sense I think they will prevail, I'm pessimistic in the sense I think it's going to take a long time, right. because the, the, the military are so deeply entrenched in the economy. They basically run this country for the best part of sixty years, right. and they're not going to give it up <laughs> that easily. They they will make concessions, as they basically did by handing over Bashir, saying, "Okay, you can have him. He's no longer any use to us." But uh, they're not going to give up that that easily. But but it is very inspiring to see the size of the mobilizations. They're very articulate you've got a younger generation coming through it's put the you know the international community in a bit of a quandary diplomats by definition like to compromise they're always looking for compromise but on the streets I mean this week this last 10 days the word is no, no more compromise. We've had enough for the military. Mm-hmm. We have seen they cannot be trusted. We want them 100% out. We do not want them in government. Yeah, the instinct of the international community is, no, you've got to take it slowly. We've got to negotiate. I think, the, uh, to be honest, the people on the street have a case. The military have proved... Uh, that they should no longer have a role but do i think they'll give up easily no i think it's going to be a long long struggle and sadly a lot of lives will be lost
0: Mm -hmm. and as we talked about foreign interests also still like the military presence because they're a centralized body that the foreign presence can communicate stability i mean this this is
1: that we we're always looking for short-term stability we're always we're always looking at a situation we can say well okay we don't really Egypt is the classic we don't really like Al-Sisi but it's got the place under control it's all quiet we can put Egypt on one side we know where they stand or we can count on them put them on one side and and, and obviously the same same with Saudi Arabia we don't like the regime in Saudi Arabia but they're predictable and to a certain extent they they act in accordance with Western uh, with what we want to do in the, in the great power play and so the Western countries the instinct tends to be in the case of Sudan well, it's what, whoever's going to be most stable. And they, you know, the last 60 years have shown that, like it or not, it's been that the military have demonstrated stability. Uh, I would say that is now a bad bet, that sooner rather than later, uh, the civilians will come in. But, but also it behooves us, and this was, uh, I think we let Sudan down when you had the revolution between two years ago and three years ago. We did not come in quickly enough to help the civilian government restart. It took a long time for the sanctions to come off, and then they needed, they really needed help to to get that economy restarted. You had, you know, it, it would have been ludicrous if it had not been tragic, a dispute. On the one hand, the American State Department wished to lift sanctions. On the other hand, there was a lawsuit going through Congress Which was holding the government of Sudan responsible for the attack on the USS Cole in Yemen about 20 years ago to the tune of six or seven hundred million dollars. You know, and that that lawsuit was launched by the family members of the American sailors who were lost in that attack.
0: Hmm.
1: So Congress insisting on pursuing a lawsuit against. A now civilian government for something that happened 20 years ago under the military government mm-hmm. which was so sudan ended up having to pay 600 million while the state department says take the sanctions off so even then you know you had the u.s uh, at odds with itself uh, there was not enough relief and of course the ordinary people of south of, of sudan who were not necessarily very politically active what do they want you know they want bread on their table yeah and they want they want to survive to the next day mm-hmm. and they will, the risk is there will come a point where they'll say well we don't really care if it's military or civilian just whoever is giving us bread on our table. Mm-hmm. So that's why, as when you get the civilians back in, you really have to help them on the economy, help them with the fuel, taking the fuel subsidies off, help them stabilize the price of bread, help mm-hmm. them feed the poor, until it gets going as a more normal economy. And we'd be very slow to do that.
0: Right, and of course, you know-
1: that with the revolution, that's it, it's sorted. Right. Other priorities. We're always moving on to the next priority.
0: And of course, you know so much about that, because in 2013, you and your wife, Jenny, were awarded the Meritorious Service Cross for your roles in the evacuation of Canadian citizens from Juba when the Civil War broke out. So can you talk a little bit about your role in that and uh, why it was so pivotal at that time?
1: Well, I, I think, you know, first of all, whenever you have civil conflict like this, you know, maybe we're going to see this in in Addis in the next few weeks, Uh, you know, I I hope not. But the, you know, the role of any, any Canadian embassy, in fact, any Western or any external embassy, your first priority actually then suddenly shifts to looking after your own nationals. In other words, you'd have to put on one side all of your very sophisticated analysis of what's happening and what should be done and so on because you must look after your national. This applies to every government. It's the United States government, British government, or whatever. Uh, the priority, that's where the priority turns to automatically. In the case of South Sudan, and you know, this may well turn out to be the case in, in, in Ethiopia, many of the Canadian nationals were also South Sudanese nationals, what we call dual nationals. Now, in our case, in the case of the Canadian government, we treat them exactly as if they're full, how can I say, well, they are full Canadian citizens. We do not make a distinction between, them. it doesn't matter whether you have a South Sudan passport or an Ethiopian passport as well, if you have a Canadian passport, you get the same service. So uh, the number one priority is really to, to, to get in contact with those people, if you can, that's always a bit, uh, it's a bit iffy, and find out if they need assistance, if they want to get out we've seen you know very dramatically in afghanistan this was the situation a couple of months ago and it may well turn out to be the situation in ethiopia so number one priority is 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 to get them out in south sudan at, at that time 2013 you know a couple of very practical issues one is when you have a lot of dual nationals in country, they don't necessarily keep in touch with the embassy because they're at home, if you mm-hmm, like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> These are often, they were South Sudanese or descendants of South Sudanese who had fled to Canada during the war years and had come back. They're either visiting family or maybe they've come back for a couple of years to see how it goes and so on. So they don't register and communications in someone like South Sudan are very difficult uh, anyway. So on paper, I remember at the beginning of the crisis, we had officially on paper, as far as we knew, maybe 20 to 30 Canadians who had registered with the embassy. I'm not including people who worked for the UN or NGOs. Now, in reality, I knew we had at least a 1,000, maybe 1,500. But why would they register? They feel as though they're at home until suddenly all of the action starts, and then you're trying to find them. So that was the initial challenge: is you know is getting in touch with who needs help mm-hmm. in a civil war situation in Juba, where there's you can't move around and the communications are down. Sadly, again, when you have a conflict situation like this, it was quite sudden. We didn't know initially what was going on. What was what was, was initially it was. One side of the army falling against the other side of the army, uh, the Dinka element against the Nuer element, which sparked the, the the broader civil war. But that was not immediate evident what was going on. It became evident during the evacuation because nearly all of the Canadians who contacted us were of one ethnicity, the Nuer ethnicity, which was the uh, the, the half that had been attacked by the the dominant half, the Dinka, the Dinka half, if you like. And again, even that, as an outsider, not immediately evident, the dinka and are they can sometimes be distinguished by their facial markings, which is a ritual scarring on the, on the forehead. And it struck me very early on that it seemed to me nearly all of the Canadians we were evacuating were nuair. Yeah. And, and in fact, that was so. So they were being targeted by the Dinka. So it was, you know, incidentally, a bit of an insight into into what was going on.
0: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I'm, yeah, I just I can't stop thinking about the parallels again between Rwanda about how they didn't want to admit that something was happening. And then, of course, your colleague or someone that you know, because I know he did the foreword to your book, Romeo Dallaire, wrote about.
1: Yeah, very, very much so. I mean, I, I won't say South Sudan. It has not been on the scale of Rwanda, but there were, there were, there were moments and you know little glimpses. I, I mentioned in the book uh, a rather surreal moment where early on, I think it was like the first day or second day of the crisis in Juba, where there is you know full, really a civil war going on in Juba. You can hear gunfire, you can hear tanks moving around, and. We were called away to a very odd briefing at the Foreign Ministry, where, in between all of the noise of the tanks and machine gun fire, the Foreign Minister was assuring us everything was fine, but you couldn't even hear him over the the noise. Wow, that's crazy. So, when you come back home after an hour and a half or two hours of the briefing, and there, right at the doorway, at the gate of a little courtyard where the embassy was, was a dead body lying there, which had not been there when we left. We stop, I, I get out, I have a look, and there's somebody leaning over the fence. And I say, well, what happened here? And the guy, he, the, the person leaning over the fence says, basically says, lift up his cap. And I so I lifted up the cap, and there you could see the ritual scarring, which means he's nowhere. Mm-hmm. And uh, he explained what had happened. This man had just been walking along the street. There had been an army jeep, came the other way there was an exchange of words maybe 10 seconds and then they just shot him shot him dead through the forehead because he was nowhere they had right. verified his his ethnicity and shot him there and then because of that right and we saw this happening again and again it happened to some extent on the other side you had you know you had counter propaganda on a, on an ethnic basis i think it, it's all relative it, it's it did not reach the extent of rwanda mm-hmm. Some of that, and I think uh, General Dallaire was, when he visited South Sudan, in a way happy to see this, although the UN has been you know, much criticised in many areas in, in, in South Sudan. One of the, I think, an action which saved hundreds of thousands of lives in South Sudan was when the civil war broke out in 2013, basically they opened their gates mm-hmm. in all of their compounds. Which are logistics compounds, basically. They opened their gates to anybody who was looking for safety. And so, within the space of a few days, you had 200,000 people fled into those UN compounds right. just looking for, for safety. Right. They were almost exclusively Nuer initially. As the conflict developed, you then had counterattacks where Nuer were counterattacking, you had Dinka coming in. But that saved, there's no question that saved a huge number of lives. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, the problem is they then became an
1: almost permanent establishment mm-hmm. because they, not only were they given security, but basic humanitarian needs and so on. So it's now very, even though you have relative stability in South Sudan, and I emphasize the word relative, those uh, sites are now an almost permanent fixture. Right. Uh, but certainly Dallaire felt that if he had had the ability to do that in Rwanda, in other words, to open his gates and accept civilians, Things possibly would have been different, or at least they would not have been as bad as uh, as they turned out to be.
0: Yeah, because General Delair couldn't even get printing paper, if I remember correctly. He couldn't even get resources such as printing paper from head office. So to have hundreds of people coming in is a big deal.
1: Yes, I I, I, I mean his force was very small, um, and he was given these these instructions from New York, which were, uh, you know, in hindsight. no question they were the wrong instructions they were absolutely morally wrong and interestingly the the head of TPKO the Department of Peacekeeping Operations in New York at the time was Kofi Annan Mm -hmm. before he was Secretary General but Kofi Annan subsequently, you know, is to his credit, did admit that this was the the main blot on his own career mm-hmm. was not giving the first of all, not strengthening the contingent in, in Rwanda sufficiently mm-hmm. and not listening to the warnings that that had been coming from Delay and others mm-hmm. over weeks that something large was about to happen. Mm-hmm. I think in the case of South Sudan, there had been some warnings, and then when it happened, there was this greater disposition to, to open the gates and, and try to, uh, to avoid a, a repetition, which I think largely they did, yes.
0: Yeah, that's good to hear. And something that you also touched a little bit on, you spoke a little bit about counter propaganda under a military regime, but we haven't really talked about what propaganda did during the military regimes that have led Sudan. The dinka and the nur is a huge issue, and it it enticed civilians to get involved as well. As you said, someone that was clearly nur was shot by men driving by in a truck. So it became a hunt, a, a witch hunt.
1: Yeah, very much so. Uh, Tribalism—it's—it's uh, it's a very—it's a very sensitive subject in in South Sudan, as it is in neighbouring countries, that is in Uganda and uh, and Kenya, where even where some Kenya, for example, politics is largely tribal. Mm-hmm. It is not overt, and you will find nothing official about it, but people basically vote on tribal lines. In in South Sudan, it's it's very much the same. There are well. A, maybe 50 60 different ethnicities but with two dominant ones tinker and Nuer. now everything official every government government person everybody in a position of influence will say we are not tribal and, and it's very difficult as an outsider to even say well it sure looks to me like a tribal right because and, and there are exceptions for example you know in government in south sudan at the when the time all of this broke out there are new figures in government no question they but really to be honest the exceptions that prove the rule and when it comes down to it yes people's loyalties appear sadly to be tribal i think the are better educated and they you know the promise the promising politicians and the promising young people are the ones who insist we have to get over this tribalism but it's so deeply rooted and you know let's not be hypocritical here you know in the in the so-called western world the conflict in whatever you want to call it, in Northern Ireland, which has been going on for three, 400 years, mm-hmm. Catholic versus Protestant is, is basically tribal. Right. You know, you, you belong to the Catholic tribe or you belong to the Protestant tribe. Mm-hmm. It's not really about religion. It's about tribe. And that is in a highly developed Western democracy. You are born into a Catholic family. You are born into a Protestant family. It has nothing to do with whether you go to church or your exact religious beliefs. Mm-hmm it's tribal it's going to take a long time to get through that you know and of course Ethiopia is federal it's ethnic federalism you know what? what is kind of maintained a stability until quite recently is recognition of all of the different ethnic differences so each pocket is given, each ethnic pocket is given its own influence and its own power Mm -hmm. now, but that, and you can I think you can do that for a while but it's a very delicate balancing operation And, of course, now it's all gone wrong. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it had long been thought in South Sudan that uh, an example for South Sudan would be Ethiopia. In other words, really go very, very, you know, delegate all of your powers and, and make this into an ethnic federation. So little pockets of local power and a very weak central government. I, I'm not really sure that's the answer. I think Ethiopia is a demonstration that it's not the answer. Right. You have to try and get through, but it may take generations. And again, we're not necessarily ones to be preaching this. It has to come from uh, has to come from within.
0: Right. So hopefully, what happens with Sudan, and hopefully, if they gain civilian control over their government, they can then become the role models for the area or for their neighbors. Well, yeah,
1: well hopefully, yes, yes. I mean, I, I think uh, you know a lot of people were tremendously inspired by what happened. Two three years ago in, in Sudan, uh, and now we're now seeing you know we're seeing massive mobilizations on the street. But again, it's we need to be careful not to say get out on the street and demonstrate because that's to put your life at risk.
0: Right.
1: Who who are we to say what they should be doing? Right. I, I I think you know it's it's our role in the international community, and this is what I hear from my own conducts within Sudan is please amplify what's going on, make it known. But it's not our role really to take sides except to. I think it's fair enough to say that the will of the people should be respected, but it's not for us to say what the will of the people is. Right. And the will is not necessarily unified. You know, we have to be clear that in in Sudan, the civilians are not 100% unified. So right now you have the prime minister has come back in. It's very controversial. A lot of people are saying he's betrayed the revolution. Right. He says, well, I've come in to stop bloodshed. Okay, that's you know that's a defensible position, but do they all speak with one voice? No. So it's, we have to be a little bit careful about preaching to people about what they should do. Mm-hmm. But no, in South Sudan, the same thing. There's only so much we can do as external actors. Sudan, South Sudan's fate will depend on the the ability of its people, on the will of its people to demand better things mm-hmm. of their own government. Mm-hmm. That means we, you know, we can help around the edges a little bit, we can support here, we can oppose there. But in essence, you know, for South Sudan to get on its feet and become a truly sustainable country, it's going to be up to the South Sudanese. Right. We can't We can't tell them, get out on the street and change your government. Right. Because it's, it may be dangerous, there may not be enough of them. And, you know, who are we to say who should be in government and who shouldn't? Right. So on the one hand, we need to be amplifying and trying to explain. On the other hand, we need to be stepping back and not trying to dictate what will will happen.
0: And in theme with not telling people what to do or in countries what to do, how can the international community support Sudan without, you know, overstepping?
1: Well, I think that's a really critical question. I think what we can say, when we were talking about this earlier, we can say to the neighboring countries, You know, we really think that you, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, UAE and so on, should be sensitive to what the people of Sudan want and adjust your policies accordingly. Having said that, again, as we said before, that's actually quite a difficult message in countries which are autocracies. When you know Saudi Arabia and UAE are basically hereditary monarchies and Egypt is ruled by a dictator. These are not countries where listening to the will of the people is a message that is particularly welcome to them. Right. <laughs> but I think that's you know, that's one message it has has to go through. I think we can support by when you know when there are egregious abuses, uncontested abuses of human rights, war crimes, crimes against humanity, targeted sanctions. And by targeted, I mean that that means sanctioning an individual in such a way that either they can't travel, their assets are seized or whatever, and making them liable as and when they step outside the borders to to prosecution of some sort. You've got to find a sanction in the case of South Sudan that does not affect ordinary people. Withdrawing aid, I think, is not necessarily the right thing to do. In the case of Sudan, an immediate instinct of the US has been that they've suspended the $700 million program, which is feeding the poor. Well, you know, the rationale is by withdrawing that, you will increase pressure on the government. But that could go the wrong way. First of all, you could have a lot of people die. Um, Secondly... You know that pressure could could morph into support for a strong armed military government. It doesn't necessarily mean it's going to transform into democracy. Yeah. So I'm you know I think countries should be very careful when they talk about suspending aid. Mm-hmm. Is who we, who are you affecting with this?
0: And we just saw that um, in but, Afghanistan as well. On. That's ex- we just saw that in Afghanistan as well. That's exactly what happened. They pulled out of aid, and their anti group or their uh, opposition group blamed the U S. And we already talked about how that Sudan is so quick to blame. The the U.S. anyway. So if they were to pull out aid... Well,
1: that's the risk. Yeah. 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 The the risk now is that you will have the, you know, the military are able to say, well, these, you know, the U.S. and others have withdrawn the aid, but we'll stand up for you. We stand for order. We stand for a firm hand. We will deliver what these civilians have failed to deliver. Right. Uh, so, yeah, that, that withdrawal of aid uh, and, you know, the EU has done the same. Uh, it's, it's you have to be pretty careful when you talk about that.
0: Right, right. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate this conversation. I could talk to you forever. So I really yeah. appreciate you well, talking no, to me. It's
1: great It's great to talk to you and good luck. So what, what's next for you?
0: I don't even know yet. We'll see. I, I'm just doing this. Like I, I'm in, you're my sixth interview. I'm just focusing on different human rights bodies so far. And I'm trying right. to, yeah. I'm trying to fundraise for the, the for the different causes that I'm advocating for. So if this yes. podcast episode becomes profitable, then I'll give the proceeds towards uh, like a an aid group in Sudan. And right. so yeah. I'm just focused on that. And then who knows? <laughs> I really don't. I, know. Think, I think no. I, I think that, that
1: that's well, it's it's hugely uncertain times in so many ways. But you know, the whole question of justice in these contexts. Yeah. I mean that that's. I think you put your finger on it though you know we talked about bashir you know in a sense it's it's relatively easy for smaller countries like canada we you know we, we preach about justice and don't get me wrong I, you know I, I believe very much that people like bashir should pay for their crimes but you know in the case of south sudan where over the years we've had a lot of discussions about you know, all of the abuses that occurred, not just in the, in the civil war that started in 2013, but in the old, you know, in the in the real Sudan civil war, accountability and, you know, the, the line is that there will not be, the country will not really progress until there is accountability for mm-hmm. the abuses that have occurred. Mm-hmm. And, and I believe strongly in that. Nevertheless, you will never get 100% accountability. Mm-hmm. If you had 100% accountability for the abuses in, in South Sudan, you'd have half a million people in prison. Right. Okay, so you have to go for, you know, it's it's, uh, it's a compromise. You then come to the question, okay, what well, are the big guys? You know, shouldn't they be the ones to pay the price? And in principle, yes, you know, Bashir is the big guy responsible for Darfur. And on paper, he will pay the price. We'll see. But uh, in in South Sudan, it's the two big guys, President Kir and Riet Machar. Nevertheless, the pragmatists will say, okay, let's say in an ideal world, you could ship them out tomorrow to The Hague, put them on trial. What happens in South Sudan? And scenario is possibly collapse into civil war again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the justice, there's always this argument of the of, of whether justice also destabilizes. And you have a, a real philosophical discussion there, which is ongoing between the, the purists who say there have to be justice, the country to move ahead, mm-hmm. and for uh, accounts to be settled, Uh, others who say we have to be realistic and play power politics. You know, South Africa is a case that's often put up there as the, you know, the Truth and uh, Reconciliation Commission of what South Africa's, the the process they went through after apartheid, uh, where essentially the deal was, if you had been involved in abuses, as long as you put your hand up and said, I was involved and, and detailed it and confessed to it, you would not be liable for for prison time or anything like that, and I, I think that was a very, uh, many ways, inspiring process. Uh, having said that, all of those who put their hands up have been the, you know, the oppressors, the whites, right. if you like. Yeah, there were abuses on the other side. There's right. no question. You had in South Africa, you know, a scenario which essentially one side won. I mean, they're the right side. Don't get me wrong. The right side won, uh, the side of pluralism and, and, and democracy and and the, the, the black majority. So they won. But in South Sudan and many other cases, you do not have a clear clear victor. In South Sudan, the bad guys are still in office. Mm-hmm. So why would they go through any kind of accountability process? Right. It's to shoot themselves in the foot.
0: Right. I just get so, uh, you know, I just get so bothered with, we're talking about the... The politics of it all so the top players but the people who suffer from it are the ones that just pull pull my interest pull my heart because they're caught in this fight that they don't have any control over and well
1: well, well, totally yes yeah i mean it's and it is it's you know we we talk mockingly about that you know the big men in africa it is you know the big men Who pull the strings of tribalism? But then we're into you know also the geopolitics we talked about. Mm. You know how is it that we're all um, all nice and friendly with Saudi Arabia and and Egypt and UAE, which are uh, repellent autocracies?
0: Right. Yeah
1: a national interest. Yeah.
0: And then you think about the Nuremberg trials as well in that they were they had a trial I think even 4 years ago where they took like a 92-year-old man and tried to give him a charge. I so, you know, I well, don't Again,
1: I mean this was I mean Nuremberg is is the, you know, the the forerunner of the international criminal court. Right. And in many ways so you know Nuremberg you know, A lot of positive things, but it was justice of the victors.
0: Yeah, right.
1: Um, Certainly, those who paid the price were horrible people. There's no question. What they did was absolutely horrendous. But uh, of course, there was no discussion of the bombing of Dresden or uh, you know other other abuses on the island There's always abuses on two sides, but it's the the victors' justice which carries the day.
0: Right. So, what will you as it
1: it has done in South Africa? Yeah.
0: So what will you and Jenny do next? What's the big plan?
1: Yeah, well, it's I I find just everything's in you know limbo with this COVID. We'll see, you know, we'll see whether the everyone seems to be through it, but we're not. The statistics don't seem to say we're we're through it. We'll we'll, we'll see. Mm -hmm. Um, But just as you know, it just changes every everything you do and every every way in business. I, I. I think maybe all of us are in limbo and we just need to start focusing on the future again. I haven't really yet have to confess.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I get that. Yeah. Do you think there's any sailing trips in your future?
1: Oh, I'm sure. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, I, but I really, I mean, I, I, I often find myself thinking, I mean, it's one thing for us to be in limbo when, you know, we're at our age and, and retired and so on. But how it must be for when you're in university or just coming out of university, yeah, that frustration is just—I uh, mean, I, I, I admire you for what you're going through. With, yeah, uh, stuff.
0: But it's a new... But, but also, it's new. I also
1: feel how sad, how many people are, are losing that, you know, that classy experience of what we had, of, which we took for granted, of university life and getting right. into career and so on. And everything has just been just put, just been frozen. Yeah.
0: I think it's pushing people to think about new avenues of where to go. I would have never started a podcast. I have no idea what audio training is. Like, right, that's yes, not... Yeah, yeah, sure, but yes, I, yes. I had to learn. I, I was like, I want to travel and I, I still want to keep my mind busy, so... You know, you figure it out. And, well,
1: it, it, it opens up all of those avenues. No, no question. Yeah. yeah. But on the other hand, I mean, one thing is, you know, college at college uh, age people, also young kids. So it's been two years of limbo now. You know, if you're six or seven years old, two years is a lifetime. Yeah. It's changed your life. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah my cousin, who's two, had two years like where he didn't play with other children, and his development you know, is so different. Interact, yes. Yeah. So. Yeah,
1: and now it's all about masks and so on. I mean, I it's 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 uh maybe counterintuitive it seems like kids have no problem with masks they just accept it it's uh, it's what mom and dad say if they have to right. wear a mask you have to wear a mask it's no big deal it's, right. it's all of the adults who are <laughs> pushing back on masks yeah so, it's but, the uh,
0: debates that i've gone into is just crazy but we won't get into that thankfully yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. well yeah. thank you so much i really appreciate it this was amazing Well,
1: congratulations on what you're doing great oh it's nice to hear from you